For a while to the passage of Scripture, we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And I'd like us to focus on verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Christ is sovereign. He's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And uh, much of his preaching during his three years of ministry here on earth focused upon the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew uh, puts it. A few years ago at Christmas, I gave my granddaughter, Rowan Margaret, an atlas. Uh, she was, I think, five at the time, and uh, she was fascinated to open it up and look at all the different countries of the world in their different uh, colors. But the kingdom of God is not a kingdom that can be found on a map. It has no territorial boundaries, but nevertheless, it has long been established here on earth. The kingdom of God is within you, says Jesus. The kingdom of God is within you, says Jesus. And much of his preaching, as I said, focuses upon the kingdom, and a number of his parables uh, focus upon the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like uh, somebody who planted a mustard seed, the smallest of all garden seeds. And when it grew, it grew into a strong a tree and uh, the birds of the air came and made their nests in the branches. And on another occasion, when he posed the question, what is the kingdom of God like? He said, it's like a woman who was mixing dough to make bread and uh, she put yeast into it and the yeast worked its way all the way through the uh, dough. So the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven uh, was very much on Jesus' mind during his preaching. And Mark records for us that when Jesus began his ministry, he called on people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. He had come to proclaim the good news that people through believing in Jesus would gain entry into that kingdom. If we are a believer in Christ today, then we are a member of that kingdom. We know God as our sovereign a Lord. But before believers came to Christ, they were in another a kingdom. It was a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of darkness in which they were held captive, captive until God in his grace came and released them and set them free. Paul writes in Colossians, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And if we look closely at that a statement of Paul there, it focuses for us upon the divine initiative. We didn't tunnel out of a, the kingdom of darkness where Satan had kept us bound for many long years. We weren't able to climb over the walls. We were not able to escape a, by our own a, efforts. He has rescued we read there he has brought us out and if it were not for that then we would still be held helpless trapped a slave 
to uh, Satan. But God is a God of amazing grace, and he was not willing to leave his people in that kingdom of darkness. And so he sent his son Jesus into the world to, uh, uh, to bind up the strong man, the strong man who is Satan, and to plunder his goods, his goods being men and women, boys and girls, created in the image and likeness of God. When a strong man, fully armed, we read in Luke's gospel, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. And Matthew puts it this way here as we are focusing upon in our text. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can rob his house? Satan is that strong man, and we as men and women are powerless against him in our own uh, strength. When one who is stronger, the Lord Jesus Christ has tied him up, has stripped him of his armor, and is dividing up the spoils. The jailer is now the jailed. The captor is now held captive. Jesus came, as he announced in uh, Luke chapter 4, when he came to his hometown, he had come to set the prisoners free. He was, uh, he was focusing upon the words of Isaiah 61, that when the Messiah would come, when the Christ would come, one of the many tasks that he would accomplish would be to proclaim freedom for the captives. And Jesus came not just to proclaim, but also to claim and to establish his kingdom, to rob the strong man's house and to disarm him, doing something that we individually or corporately as a church, as a body of the Lord's people, we are unable to do, but Jesus has done it for us. And one day when that kingdom is complete, much that we take for granted in this life will be missing. And Jesus was demonstrating through his preaching and through his miracles or signs, as John called them, what the kingdom of God would ultimately be like. This is uh, one of uh, eight studies that uh, I've done over the years on the kingdom of God, and I was in a bit of a quandary this week, which of those studies that I would present to you this morning. Each one of them can stand alone, although they, they do flow one to the other. I think on Tuesday I was going to give you study number two, and then on Wednesday it was going to be study number three, and on Thursday it was going to be study number four, and Thursday one the day. So what you're getting here is study number four. I actually gave you study number eight back in November. Um, whether you remember that or not, I do not know. But when the kingdom of God is complete. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back as he has promised at the end of time, there are so many things that we simply take for granted today that will be brought to an end. And I want us to go through uh, some of them as we study the future of what the kingdom will be like. First, there will be no sickness, there will be no disease, there will be no infirmity, 
and I'm very sorry if there are nurses or doctors here, it means that there will be no need for the NHS. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. What a, uh, an amazing uh, prospect. When I was coming into the church today, I paused at the entrance because there was a, a man, no doubt partially sighted. He had a, a guide dog and uh, he was very carefully crossing the road leading into the church. But the day will come, then will the eyes of the blind be opened. Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for healing a crippled woman on the Sabbath day, and he accused them of being hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey and the, from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? And Jesus freed her from the affliction that had caused her such anguish in her life. There's another thing that will be missing, but it's not something that troubles us much here in the West, but having worked in uh, developing countries and other parts of the world, it is something that people there are very conscious of and something that was very much a, the focus of Jesus' uh, signs and miracles uh, here on earth. There will be no demons in the kingdom. And a highway will be there, we read in Isaiah 35. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Satan commands an army of demons, fallen angels who joined him in their rebellion against their creator, against God. We cannot imagine the situation way back a long, long time ago, that these were angels whom God had created, who, who, who saw God, who, who served him, and yet they rebelled against him. Jesus healed many people suffering from demon possession. And it's very easy for us in this modern scientific age to try to rationalize demon possession, claiming that we know better today and it is simply a form of mental illness. Well, mental illness it is indeed, but as a result of outside influences. And the anguish it causes is seen in the poor man that Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee to heal in the, uh, in the land of the Decapolis, a man who lived amongst the tombs, day and night among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. He was helpless against a higher power. And so Jesus, out of compassion, went all the way across the lake to heal him, and having done so, came back again. Such is the compassion, such is the, the, the love that Jesus has for individual men and women. And of course, it affects people's minds. This poor man was deranged. And when the people of that region came to see what was going on, there was the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed, and we're told, in his right mind. In his right mind. And if you want to know 
examples of real fear in Scripture than read the response of demons to Jesus. They were terrified of him because they recognized the authority that he had as the true king, and they fell at his feet. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? They begged him repeatedly, we read in Luke 8, not to order them to go into the abyss. What do you want with the Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know eh, better than many, many human beings know that Jesus is Lord and that the day will come when his servants will bind them up and throw them together with the Satan and the false prophet into the lake of burning sulfur. And people were amazed, rightly so. What is this, they said, a new teaching and with authority. He even commands evil spirits and they obey him. And the true king had at last arrived after hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy pointing to the day when the Messiah would come, when the Christ would come. Uh, and here at last, the true king had arrived. In Matthew 12 there, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. That kingdom has come. That kingdom has entered into the domain of time and is laying siege to Satan's strongholds. And the day will come gradually when each and every one of them will eventually crumble. Sickness will be absent, as we pointed out. No demons will gain entry to torment the Lord's people, and sin will be no more. Imagine a world without sin. Sin will be no more. That rebellious act which opened the floodgates of pain and suffering and of disease and war and slavery and estrangement, envy and hostility. No wonder Paul wanted to be away from this world and to be in the nearer presence of the Lord. No wonder the prayer of the early church was, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And I wonder how often we make that prayer, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And there will be one other notable absentee. Something that has affected all of us. Death will no longer maintain its cold grip upon us. In Luke chapter 1, the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. And with the absence of death, there will be no more tears. There will be no more loneliness that follows the parting from a loved one, and no aging. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away as we read in Revelation chapter 21. And how is it that death will be no more? Surely death is just a, a natural part of this life. We are born, we progress through life, through all the various stages, and then eventually death will come our way. But in Isaiah 25, we read there, on this mountain, the mountain of Jerusalem, <clears throat> he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears 
from all faces. There, 700 years before Christ came into the world, we have this prophetic world that the shroud that enfolds all people would be uh, destroyed. He will swallow up death forever. It's a wonderful metaphor, isn't it? Uh, perhaps like me, you enjoy watching uh, nature programs, and in a lot of these nature programs, we see uh, various types of creatures eating other types of uh, creatures. And I remember some years ago watching uh, a snake, it was in Africa, and uh, a secretary bird, a secretary bird, as maybe our African friends here will know, is a, a very large bird with a very long beak, and they like snakes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, the secretary bird flew down, and it started to stamp on the head of the snake, very poisonous snake, and then it started to hit it with its beak. And when it was satisfied that the snake was dead, he flipped it up into the air, and head first, he swallowed it completely. Sometimes we see lions and hyenas eating their prey, but when they've done so, you can see the bones lying there eh, on the ground. But when the secretary bird swallowed the snake, it was gone completely. And that's how it was with the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. He, he took away, he destroyed the shroud that enfolds all peoples. He will swallow up death forever, leaving no sign at all. And that mountain is Calvary. Calvary's mountain outside the city walls of Jerusalem where Jesus did battle in the heavenly realms and where he struck Satan a mortal blow. And there's a lovely hymn. If you've got a hymn book called Christian Hymns, a man named John Elias wrote this hymn. When Jesus bowed his head and dying took our place, the veil was rent, a way was found to that pure home of grace. He conquered blackest hell. He trod the serpent down, a host from fetters, hills set free by grace to be God's own. Isn't that a wonderful a passage? I'll read it again. When Jesus bowed his head and dying took our place, the veil was rent, a way was found to that pure home of grace. He conquered blackest hell. He trod the serpent down. A host from fetters hill set free by grace to be God's own. And in Hebrews, we read Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And what about other miracles that Jesus did? What about the feeding of the 5,000 and of the 4,000? What do they say about the kingdom of God? In both accounts, we're told that the people ate and they were satisfied. Jesus was backing up his preaching with deeds. There are degrees of faith. Some people have a very strong faith. Other people, their faith is not quite so strong. Some people don't need a physical demonstration. Jesus' word is sufficient. Others need that little bit extra. How gracious Jesus is to accommodate our doubts 
and our fears. He said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And that's us, isn't it? If we have come to put our faith and trust in Jesus, we've not seen him, but yet we've been enabled to believe. We see him with the eye of faith. And Jesus tells us not to worry about food, about drink, and about clothing, not to store up treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but seek first his kingdom and all these other things will be given to you as well. And if they ate and were satisfied while Jesus was physically with them here on earth, then how much more will we in the kingdom of heaven? And we don't need to wait. We don't need to wait. How often has the Lord made provision for us in times of need? When I was studying at the Free Church College, I reached a point where uh, we virtually ran out of money. And uh, I discussed with Margaret, I said, I'm going to go in, speak to the principal, <coughs> and ask if I could go back offshore to the work that I used to do and pick up my studies uh, in a year's time, pick up where I left off. And on a Thursday morning, we used to meet as students uh, half past eight for a time of prayer. And I never said anything to anybody about our financial situation and uh, uh, at about five to nine, when we'd finished our prayers and we were about to go into our first lecture, one of the students said to me, do you have financial difficulties? And uh, I said, well, we do actually. And he didn't say anything, but he convened, he convened the other students and uh, there was a benevolent fund for students. And at lunchtime, they gave me a check and that check enabled me to finish my studies for the remainder of that academic year. Some years ago when I was minister in Loch Gilpid, uh, it was our communion time. We had a visiting minister from Lewis and uh, on the Monday, we had a Monday evening service in those days. They don't now. And uh, uh, for many years, people had said to me, I needed to go down and, and visit this godly uh, lady who lived further down the peninsula from Loch Gilpid. And uh, so that's what we did. We went down to see her. I'd never seen her before. And uh, as we went into her house, she had one of these sort of Rayburn stoves, and there was a big pot of soup bubbling away. And I said to the minister with me, well, we won't stay long. She's obviously expecting visitors. And uh, <laughs> she told us that she'd had a phone call from the people that she'd been inspecting expecting and they said well for family reasons they weren't able to come and uh, so she said well lord you meant this suit for somebody and she just kept it bubbling away on the stove and then the two of us came in and uh, we were royally fed uh, with that soup you see how the lord meets us at our point of need <clears throat> and i remember when i was in sunday school in london many many years ago hearing stories from visiting missionaries of how the Lord had provided for them so many times 
when they had absolutely nothing to feed their children. And as Christians, we're already within God's kingdom. We're already experiencing his blessings in the here and now as a foretaste of the hereafter. David wrote in Psalm 27, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So Jesus, by his preaching and by his signs and miracles, was demonstrating the nature of his kingdom, pointing his hearers to the reality of future life in that kingdom. His miracles were signs pointing ahead to when Jesus would finally put all his enemies under his feet. The Old Testament saints saw it in the distance, like the, the, the first rays of the rising sun. And in Hebrews 11, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And in Revelation 21, he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. We look around us in this dark and sin-sick world, and there are so many things that trouble us, so many things that disturb us, so many things that cause us anguish and grief. But in the new age, in the new age when Christ comes to consummate his kingdom, they will all be consigned to the past. And one day the Lord's people will experience that perfection when the king who is the author and perfecter of our faith finally comes and takes his throne. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we say in the Lord's Prayer. And I hope that one day each and every one of us gathered here will meet up again on that day on the far shore when Jesus comes to claim his own. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to these thoughts and meditations on his word. We conclude by singing.